and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the likelihood that Sudan will descend into a bloody and destructive civil war along the lines of Syria and Libya, as two warlords fight it out for power with bombs, tanks and artillery, with civilians collateral damage as they hunker down without food and medicine as battles rage around them. Joining us to explain the role of internal power struggles and external exploitation is Alden Young, the Vice Chair and an Associate Professor of the African American Studies Department at the University of California, Los Angeles, as well as a faculty member of the International Development Studies Program of the UCLA International Institute. A political and economic historian of Africa, he's the author of Transforming Sudan, Decolonization, Economic Development and State Formation and has done extensive fieldwork in Egypt, Ethiopia, Jordan, the United Arab Emirates, and Sudan. His current research examines how Sudanese intellectuals and businessmen conceptualized the rise of the Arab Gulf beginning in the 1970s and built economic, political, and labor relationships between Sudan and the Gulf region. Then we will take an extensive look into the military preparations for a spring offensive by Ukrainian forces and the extent to which they are sufficiently armed by the US and NATO to assess whether they will achieve some sort of decisive victory or a knockout blow in a war that is predicted to last another two to three years. Joining us is Branislav Slanchev, who is a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, where he teaches courses in international relations, national security and game theory, and studies military coercion, intra-war negotiations, the conduct of war, and war termination. His articles have appeared in the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, International Studies Quarterly, and Security Studies, among others, and he's the author of Military Threats, The Cost of Coercion, and The Price of Peace. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Alden Young, who's the Vice Chair and Associate Professor of the African American Studies Department at the University of California, Los Angeles, as well as a faculty member of the International Development Studies Program of the UCLA International Institute, a political and economic historian of Africa. He's the author of Transforming Sudan, Decolonization, Economic Development and State Formation, and has done extensive field work in Egypt, Ethiopia, Jordan, the United Arab Emirates and Sudan. And he's 
Sudanese current research examines how Sudanese intellectuals and businessmen conceptualized the rise of the Arab Gulf beginning in the 1970s and built economic, political and labor relations between Sudan and the Gulf region. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alden Young. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Alden. And of course, much of the coverage of of this hideous fratricide that's going on in Sudan is focused here in the United States on how many Americans are getting out. There are apparently at least 16,000 Americans in the country and 300 or so have left in a convoy of buses that's being guided, uh, monitored by armed uh, drones hovering overhead. But meanwhile, the people in Sudan are trapped in their houses. They're essentially collateral damage as these two generals, you know, fight it out using tanks and artillery and bombs. And the people are cowering in their homes and facing starvation. So this is a massive humanitarian catastrophe, is it not? I think it's a humanitarian catastrophe at a scale at which many of us, uh, even in a region in which we are unfortunately sort of used to humanitarian catastrophes, many of us are surprised by the magnitude and the quickness with which this one unfolded. And particularly in the fact that it's happened in Khartoum, the capital city, um, a city that while Sudan has had many wars throughout its independent history, has largely escaped the worst of those and been a refuge for people throughout the region um, to come to. And the fact that it's happening in Khartoum in the um, in, what, in many ways, in what were the most um, middle class, upper middle class neighborhoods, I think has been a real shock to people. So the former Prime Minister, Abdallah Hamdok, who was Prime Minister twice between 2019 and 2022, he is told the BBC that the insecurity for the people could become worse than the civil wars in Syria and Libya. So that's a pretty grim prediction, is it not? And I think it's quite accurate. Um, I think in many ways, we in the West, we didn't pay attention to the fact that perhaps the worst fighting in the last few years has been in uh, neighboring Ethiopia, where some people say 600,000 people died. And it's likely that the fighting in, in Sudan could become uh, worse than those other conflicts. The situation in Darfur seems very unstable, and perhaps that will pull in Chad as well. And many people are having to flee into places like South Sudan that are themselves, um, you know, very prone to instability, are suffering from instability. And they're going into northern Ethiopia, which is the site of incredible amount of uh, uh, war and violence. And, and there doesn't seem to be a clear end in sight. So the conflict, there doesn't seem to be a way right now to pull the two warring parties uh, back from the brink. But, Alden, you mentioned South Sudan. Of course, South Sudan seceded from Sudan, and in doing so, took three-quarters of Sudan's oil reserves. But the newest country on the planet quickly descended into the most brutal civil war, not unlike what's happening in Sudan itself today, is it not? There were two, essentially, leaders, the president and his vice president, couldn't get along, didn't see eye to eye, and they started a bloody civil war. That's right. In 2013, unfortunately, in South Sudan, the president and vice president, who represented different armed factions of the Sudanese People's uh, Liberation Army and different ethnic configurations, uh, fell into um, 
a prolonged civil war, the heart of which lasted at least until 2018, but still simmers within South Sudan. And it's still a major um, a problem of insecurity. And I think, unfortunately, countries like the United States didn't learn the lessons from the negotiations that led to the independence of South Sudan. Um, international, the international community is often focused on bringing armed men with guns together and making those the hearts of the negotiations. But these arrangements are very unstable, particularly when they marginalize uh, civilian forces in the country. And that, of course, happened once the, the Sudanese people, and particularly the professionals, the doctors, organized a rebellion against the 30-year-long dictatorship. And uh, they managed to get al-Bashir out or at least under house arrest. He's still waiting to be extradited to The Hague, I understand. But the two military guys uh, who are now duking it out, General Mohammed Hamdan Degalo, the head of the Rapid Support Forces, and Army Commander General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, they never gave up power, right? They pretended to. That's exactly what happened. I think that's the heart of the tragedy in Sudan right now. And it's a tragedy that I think should make the international community reflect on its involvement with a number of countries. But in Sudan, after 30 years of military rule, some of those were in conjunction with the Islamic movement, but primarily by the time uh, 2019 happened, it had become a military regime. Popular mobilization took place along the country for months, right? Demonstrations took place for months. And these have been simmering since... Uh, for at least 10 years, um, these kinds of demonstrations. And they had failed multiple times before. But this time, the economic crisis, the political crisis was of such a magnitude that in April 2019, they were finally able uh, to force a confrontation um, between Bashir, Omar al-Bashir, and his military uh, commanders. And those military commanders, uh, Abdul Fattah Burhan and um, Hamdam Doglo, often known as Hameti, and Hameti in Arabic means my protector. He was, um, that was the phrase, that was the nickname that al-Bashir often used for him. Um, he was supposed to be his protector, both against the army and against the people. Um, they turned on Bashir, and they claimed initially, you know, as military dictators, military leaders often do, that they were implementing a transition to civilian rule. And over several months of continued demonstrations, one of the things that you have to give the Sudanese protesters, Sudanese uh, civil society, is that they have continuously protested against military rule. They agreed to share power with the forces of freedom and change. But after two years, they reneged on that agreement. In October 2021, uh, Abdel Fattah Burhan overthrew the civilian members of something called the Sovereign Council, which was supposed to be the council running the country, and deposed the civilian prime minister, Abdullah Hamdok. And and since then, there's been a really unstable military rule in which the military has been in partnership with militias, um, pro-government militias and anti-government militias, to govern against the civilian population. And unfortunately, it's been very expedient for the international community, uh, particularly uh, the United States, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, United Arab Emirates, to deal with the military commanders. You often hear the kind of complaint from U.S. diplomats 
that it's too hard to deal with the civilians, um, particularly because the civilians are divided between the old traditional parties and new popular mobilization forces, uh, the neighborhood committees, the revolutionary committees, and that there's too many of them, that they don't have a clear position. It's too hard for us to you know, pick up the telephone and call one person. And I think that desire in Washington to call one person has often led us uh, to be biased towards military men, intelligence officers, uh, strong men, dictators of various types in countries like Sudan that we don't uh, care enough about. So the problem also extends, does it not, not just to the United States, but to countries like neighboring countries like Egypt. Sisi, the military dictator in Egypt, he's was a classmate at the equivalent of Egypt's West Point with Al Burhan, right? That's right. And and this the neighboring dynamics, I think, is one of the uh, major forces of instability in Sudanese politics. Egypt and and there's very personal relationships between these people, right? Sisi is a military president. Sisi is a military uh, classmate of Abdel Fattah Burhan, and the Egyptian army has very strong, long-standing, decades-long relationships with the Sudanese armed forces. And the Egyptian army would not like to see uh, either a militia or a collection of militias come to power in Sudan, marginalizing the armed forces, their traditional allies, nor would they like to see civilian transition in Sudan, uh, undermining the right of the military to rule in Egypt. Similarly, uh, various princes in the Gulf states have actually supported different actors in Sudanese conflict. And so you see uh, some princes supporting Hameti and deriving economic benefits from, from the RSF, from the Rapid Support Forces, particularly in the export of gold and other minerals and resources, while other princes, other factions might support the Sudanese armed forces. A similar dynamic kind of plays out in Saudi Arabia. And we have to remember that Hameti and Burhan know each other and are in many ways sort of cohort mates. Uh, both from the wars in Darfur in the early 21st century, where they worked very closely together. And then later, after 2011, they worked together in Yemen. Um, and they fought for Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates against the Houthis in Yemen. And so in some ways, what were the conflict we're seeing is a return to Khartoum of conflicts that used to happen in the peripheries and in the neighboring countries. So... What is then the possibility of, I mean, the U.S. doesn't seem to have any much leverage over Mohammed bin Salman, particularly the Biden administration. You know, it's clear that MBS wants Trump to come back, and he just gave Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, a couple of billion dollars for, for nothing, apparently. Well, actually, probably it was, it was a thank you for, for all the help that MBS got from the Trump administration uh, over the murder of the Washington Post reporter. And of course, Trump helped MBS come to power along with his son-in-law. But what can be done there in terms of influencing those countries who are, they're essentially exploiting the Sudan, right? Grabbing the gold and whatever else they can get their hands on. No, I mean, I think you're right. And in many ways, there is an exploitative relationship uh, from the more powerful uh, countries in the Arabian Peninsula and to a certain extent from Egypt on countries like Sudan. Um, but I think one thing that the Biden administration can make use of is that complete chaos in Sudan is not in Saudi Arabia's interest, 
right? I mean, we've seen the images right now of Saudi having opened the ports in Jeddah uh, to Sudanese refugees, but they'll be very reluctant uh, to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of Sudanese refugees flood uh, their borders. Similarly, Egypt also doesn't want complete chaos to the south. And Egypt wants um, the help of Sudanese armed forces to put pressure on Ethiopia uh, for control of the Nile waters, particularly with the, the huge dam, Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia. Um, and so I think in that way, stability is in the interest of um, the neighboring countries. And so I think it's incumbent upon, you know, creative diplomacy in DC uh, to sort of make that interest clear uh, to, to our partners in the region. I mean, it's not that these partners aren't incredibly self-interested. One of the huge things that the Gulf states have done, and you see this in the work of someone like Nisreen, Al, uh, Nisreen Omar, is that they have bought up huge tracts of land in Sudan where they grow water-intensive agricultural products to feed their own livestock industry, you know, to grow, to make milk and dairy products. And so for food security. And so I don't think that they'll want complete chaos in Sudan. I, I worry somewhat that the obvious low-hanging fruit is for the international community to rally behind the Sudanese armed forces. And perhaps that's necessary as a first step, you know, to defeat the rapid support forces as a power, as a power militia. But I worry that that, you know, could open the door to a return to military dictatorship in Sudan. And so I think there has to be an accounting afterwards of the failures of the rapids of the of the Sudanese armed forces. Uh, there needs to be an accountability for the senior officer corps it need to be held into account. And this should be a warning that civilian control of the security service in Sudan um, needs to be a very high priority uh, for everyone who is interested in stability in this region. But just in the last few minutes, when they were riding high on all the oil revenues that they were getting in the early 2000 to about 2008, they were pumping 500,000 barrels a day. Now they're only pumping 70,000 barrels a day. A lot of that money, Al-Bashir invested in hydro projects and irrigation, which is, you mentioned that these Saudi and Emirati princes bought up vast lands which are being irrigated to grow crops for export. And also a lot of it relied on fertilizer, which comes from Ukraine, and that's, of course, been impacted by the war. So there's been a recession, has there not, in the last couple of decades. It's making life miserable for the average Sudanese, right? No, that's 100% right. I mean, in 1999... I think elements of the Sudanese armed forces realized that they had a unique opportunity uh, to begin negotiations with South Sudan, you know, to control uh, some of the excesses of the, of the Islamic movement um, and to make an opening, if not fully with the West, to reach an accommodation with the West and some of the Gulf states um, to bring in Chinese investment, Asian investment, Indian investment, Malaysian investment, and to sort of develop the state based on the oil revenues, develop a, at least certain portions of the state based on the oil revenues. And it led to a 10-year economic boom in Sudan. And so the golden period in recent decades has been the period between 1999 and 2009, which saw 
you know, a kind of great expansion of prosperity, particularly in Khartoum. That prosperity was not shared equally throughout the country. Um, it was not shared equally with South Sudan, where most of the oil was, which eventually led to the split in 2011. But unfortunately, and I think this is why the civil war broke out by 2013 in South Sudan, and it's been very, uh, it's been a sort of long recession, if not depression, in, in Khartoum and in northern Sudan since about 2013 with the collapse in oil prices. But that impact has only gotten worse over time. Right. By 2018, there were bread shortages in Khartoum, I mean, which sort of led, I think, in some ways to the overthrow of Bashir, created the conditions for the overthrow of the Bashir regime. And then with the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, COVID, and then the war in Ukraine, the situation has only gotten worse. The situation is dire. Um, the vulnerabilities, the economic hardship that are being faced by ordinary people is quite extreme. And now the outbreak of this war, uh, destroys much of the progress that was made in the early 21st century, right? I mean, it's going to take a very long time, unfortunately, for Sudan to recover from this. It's catastrophic. Well, Alden Young, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Alden Young, who's the vice chair and an associate professor of the African-American Studies Department at the University of California, Los Angeles, as well as a faculty member of the International Development Studies Program of the UCLA International Institute, a political and economic historian of Africa. He's the author of Transforming Sudan, Decolonization, Economic Development and State Formation, and has done extensive fieldwork in Egypt, Ethiopia, Jordan, the United Arab Emirates and Sudan. And his current research examines how Sudanese intellectuals and businessmen conceptualized the rise of the Arab Gulf beginning in the 1970s and built economic, political and labor relationships between Sudan and the Gulf region. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an extensive look into the military preparations for a spring offensive by Ukrainian forces and the extent to which they are sufficiently armed by the U.S. and NATO to assess whether they will achieve some sort of decisive victory or a knockout blow in a war that is predicted to last another two to three years. I am a poor while traveling world of war Yeah, there's no sickness toil or danger In that bright world to which I go I'm going there to see my father Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Branislav Slanchev, who is a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, where he teaches courses in international relations, national security, and game theory. And he also studies military coercion, intra-war negotiations, the conduct of war, and war termination. 
His articles have appeared in the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, International Studies Quarterly, and Security Studies, among others. And he's the author of Military Threats, The Cost of Coercion, and The Price of Peace. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stanislav Slanchev. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Stanislav. And on the last program I did, I interviewed uh, Michael Kimmage, who was uh, head of the State Department's Russia-Ukraine desk, and he was quite pessimistic about how long this war would go on, at least two to three years. Is that something that uh, you would share or think is a possibility? Uh, so while I would not try to predict the duration, I think it is very likely that the war will continue well into next year, yes. So right. I would expect something uh, on the order of at least two years, yes. That's what he said, two to three years. Does that mean then that the forthcoming offensive by Ukraine won't be a knockout punch? Um, it is. There's always a chance, of course, but I think, and again, we need to be very careful what we're defining here as a knockout punch. If uh, we think that Ukraine will be able to liberate all its, you know, 1991 territories, which would include Crimea, or even the the pre-invasion line of contact, you know, from last year, I think it's very unlikely that they can do this. And so I don't think that is the purpose of the current offensive, frankly. Uh, I think the big big thing that uh, the current offensive can do, and I think uh, we can reasonably expect it to do, is to demonstrate to the Russians and to the West uh, the, the the resolution of one big uncertainty right now, and the big uncertainty is, can the Ukrainian military breach prepared Russian defenses? So far, we haven't had a situation like this. What we've had over the last year is the Russians attacking Ukrainian positions relentlessly, uh, in some cases advancing, like they did last year in Severodonetsk, which they eventually took. Now, with the you know, in control of almost the entire uh, town of Bakhmut. Uh, they have, however, failed in several other sectors like Ruhledar or um, Avdiivka, which they've also tried very hard, Avdiivka in particular, for eight years at this point. Um, and so the big question is, can the Ukrainians do better than what the Russians had done? The uh, last year's offensive in Kharkiv, they breached... Uh, thinly manned Russian positions. They managed to turn the front. They were very successful. This this was a huge surprise just how successful they were. In Kherson, they managed to put the Russians in a position that compelled them to withdraw to, to the left bank of the Dnipro River. And so, so, so far, we haven't actually seen the Ukrainians attempt to dislodge the Russians uh, from such positions. And the Russians have spent quite a bit of time fortifying their positions. And now, even after their last offensive, it's petering out right now, they have at least four groupings of 10 to 40,000 troops that they held back, they held in reserve. I think originally they were meant to exploit any breakthroughs that they could achieve, but because they could not actually achieve any breakthroughs, uh, they uh, decided, I think, to keep them to meet the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And so it, it's going to be tough. But it is very important for the Ukrainians to do this, because if they can show that they can overcome these defenses, then... Um, this would basically encourage the belief that the Russians will not be able to hold on to their conquests by prolonging the war, freezing the conflict, or anything like this. Because that is the Russian strategy right now. 
They have shown that they are no longer capable of conquering new territories. They probably are incapable of getting to the um, uh, administrative borders of the territories that they claim, you know, like Zaporizhia, where they don't control of it. Of course, Donetsk, which they don't control, Kherson, that they don't control of all of the, 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 the regions. And their goal now is to just wait it out. So if the Ukrainians, that I think is the primary purpose, of, at least for me, to see if whether the Ukrainians can do this. Because if they can, then there's a good chance that they can actually do this gradually. It's not going to be the end of the war, but it will tell us what the trajectory of the war is likely to be. Um, so I think liberation is not very likely of all the territories this year. But when you go on offensive, you suffer more casualties, right? Yes, they will suffer more casualties. I'm very much hoping that uh, they don't do what the Russians do, which was frontal attacks on fortified cities. I think what they're doing right now, we hear daily reports of Ukrainian attacks here and there. They're basically trying uh, across the entire front line to find weak spots, right? And so what they will try to do is break in um, a couple of sectors, break through the defense, and uh, then push very quickly through. Uh, pour basically people and equipment through tanks, you know, the infantry fighting vehicles, all this stuff, and then try to turn the 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 the, the, the cause the Russians in the other positions to panic and leave. Um, that would that's often because they'll be threatened uh, with being hit from the back or being encircled or enveloped or whatever. And so, hopefully, that is what the Ukrainians will do. They've been able to fight smart. They're much more sensitive, I think, to the casualties that uh, the Russian government appears to be. So they have been profit uh, with uh, their soldiers at all. Um, and so hopefully they're not going to do these kinds of frontal assaults on, like, on, like the Russians are doing in Bakhmut, like they did in Solidar, which by all accounts has been extremely costly in terms of casualties. So, Branislav Slanchev, the West has been slow in supplying arms. And of course, this is a real war. So the the Russians burn through something like 30,000 artillery shells a day. The Ukrainians, not as much, but they still burn through a lot. I think in more they shoot more artillery shells in one day than US factories produce in a month. So there's obviously a problem there. The Germans were always slow delivering, uh, talked a good game, but ne didn't necessarily pony up. So What's your sense of the supply chain now, inadequate for an offensive of the nature that we're talking about that would need to punch a hole through the Russian defenses? Right. Um, so we have to be a little careful here with the estimates. We don't really know exactly what's been delivered, um, only what, you know, the Ukrainians are willing to tell us there have been many instances in which we have found out about certain deliveries only when they were documented in use on the front. Um, and there, of course, there's a very good reasons not to publicize what's been delivered and whatnot. Uh, yeah, the Russians, basically, they're running down their Soviet stocks, uh, which were huge, they're, but they're not infinite. And um, they have also reduced their intensity. Uh, we uh, started ramping up production last year. Uh, as did the Europeans. It just takes a while because NATO has never, uh, the doctrine was very different. The war fighting doctrine for NATO was very different from the Soviet one that the Russians inherited. And so we were never expecting to see this kind of artillery heavy war, I think. And so um, it will take a while. Now, do they have enough? 
honestly, I don't know the answer to this question. Um, I think that they would not attempt to do a serious offensive unless they thought they had pretty decent chances. Because the flip side of, uh, you, know, you know, there's good things that can happen if they break through, but uh, if they fail to or liberate some chunk of territory, a recognizable chunk of territory, if they fail, uh, they know what will happen. There will be more calls in the West for negotiations, for freezing the conflict, for peace and things like this. So the downside is actually pretty serious, I think, from the Ukrainian perspective. And so my response is that if they try, they probably think they can do it. Um, is it enough? We'll find out. I think the Russians are betting that it won't be, and we and the Ukrainians will be betting that it is. But in terms of the numbers, I, I have estimates uh, that I've seen from various intelligence services uh, they they do not need to achieve the kind of levels of usage that the Russians did. I mean, the Russians, they cannot really repeat this kind of usage indefinitely. And they're going to go down to something. I have my, the estimates I've seen suggest the Russians would go down to something about five to five to 6,000 a day, which they can maintain more or less indefinitely. Uh, the Ukrainians, they use about three to 4,000, but they can get close to the Russian uh, usage uh, with our help. Uh, this year, they should be able to get about a million, 155 millimeter shells from various sources. And it doesn't include the other kinds of ammo that they're using, actually. And what this means is that if the Ukrainians can achieve local superiority, right, in some sectors of the front, they'll be able to, to break through. And that is part of the reason that everybody's trying to guess where the attack will come. <laughs> and of course, we will not know until they actually do it. So I am cautiously optimistic. So is there anything on the side of the Biden White House? I mentioned the Germans were very slow, but they seem to have come on board. And there are some rumors that Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, has always been incredibly cautious. And we know that Vladimir Putin uses the threat of nuclear war as a way to undermine support within the NATO countries and with the U.S. population. So it's a ploy on his part, but obviously world leaders have to take those threats seriously. The Chinese, of course, have berated Putin for using that, those threats. Is there anything going on there in the sense that the U.S. side, the Biden White House, doesn't necessarily want the Ukrainians to humiliate the Russians and humiliate Putin to the extent that he might go crazy and fire off a nuke? I think, frankly, that all this talk of nuclear weapons or Putin being crazy or threatened domestically and compelled to use nuclear weapons or stuff like this are red lines that we are creating ourselves. I haven't seen much in his behavior to suggest this, frankly. The things that people often trot out as being nuclear threats, if you actually listen carefully, he has never directly threatened nuclear weapons. It's always in the context of, well, if the you know defending against the Western use, only people like Medvedev and some of the crazier ones on the propaganda TV talk about first use and things like this. So even the Russians, they'll be very quite careful because remember, nuclear deterrence, it works both ways. I mean, this is not something that he would contemplate. I was very worried initially in the, the last summer, for instance, about possible use, demonstrative use of nuclear weapon, not for military purposes, but just to scare off the West. I thought back then it might have worked. I frankly think that ship has sailed. 
for political reasons. Now, an attempt is simply going to consolidate uh, the West even more. I think the Chinese understand this, and I think the Russians understand this as well. And uh, if there are any, as I said, red lines here that somebody is imposing, that's we are creating a lot of, we're basically giving the Russians credibility uh, of using it by imagining that Putin is irrational or he's threatened domestically. He cannot, absolutely cannot afford to withdraw. But the, the fact of the matter is, of course, he can withdraw tomorrow and nothing will happen to his rule in Russia. It will not fall apart. He's not going to be ousted from power. People will probably just breathe a sigh of relief that he's given up. And so I don't think it's very likely, frankly. Again, it's never zero probability, but I think it's highly unlikely. I also think that while it was true that uh, it took a while for the Biden administration to come around to the idea that Ukraine has a chance of actually prevailing militarily in the sense of removing the Russians from Ukrainian soil, uh, now they have decided to do this. Uh, the Germans took a while longer. Uh, th that was part of the reason, I think, for the food dragging in the West. But from the moment we decided to give uh, the, the tanks with all the equipment that comes with that, uh, to me, that was a pretty clear signal that we are now in the camp of, let's see if Ukraine can actually win this. Again, win being defined as removing the Russians, at least from the pre-invasion uh, territory, which is the minimum that's necessary to open, I think, any sort of negotiations. So I think that the deliveries, again, they, may, they, they were slow for a variety of reasons, right? Um, not because uh, people were kind of uh, afraid of escalating. I think that factor has kind of fallen by the wayside and it did a while back. It's basically, our hollowed out production, which it takes a while to ramp up, the Europeans in particular in pretty bad shape. Uh, that takes a very long time for them too, but they have actually larger capacity. Once they go online, it will be great. That is why we're talking, you know, to South Koreans who have huge supplies of shells and artillery to maybe, um, you know, do something about it. So far, they have only been agreeing to replenish some of our supplies to replace things that we sent Ukraine. And so, um, I think that is why it's a little hard to make predictions about who has the advantage of delay here. Um, because while the Russians are betting that the West is getting tired of this and they're undermining support and all these things, on the other hand, the West is consolidating, it is ramping up production, and it will make it easier to sustain the war effort, actually, um, over time. I, I believe, in fact, that the Russians here uh, may be miscalculating very seriously what, what's happening. But there's always been an asymmetry, Branislav, in the sense that the Russians are, are pounding the infrastructure and civilian buildings, uh, and they just did it just on the last day, killed 19 people in, in, a, mm -hmm. in an apartment building that was right. struck by a caliber missile. Apparently, they shoot down something like 90% of them, but they still some get through. Mm -hmm. But the point is that the Russians are free to destroy the country of Ukraine, which they've, they've done in part whereas the Ukrainians can't strike back at the Russian territory, and particularly at its uh, supply depots, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a smattering of kind of guerrilla activity, as there was in Crimea, blowing up a, a big oil storage depot. But nevertheless, that asymmetry has got to be driving the Ukrainians crazy. Um so but let's be also a little realistic about what the Russians have been able to achieve. Um, their entire winter campaign was predicated on this idea that if they destroy enough of the energy infrastructure 
of Ukraine. You know, the Ukrainians will freeze, they will sit in the dark, they will have nothing to eat. Uh, and right now, Ukraine is back to exporting energy. Um, they failed. Uh, the strikes on the civilian buildings, um, it, it, frankly, I actually think given the expense of these missiles that they're using, that these, this is not what they're targeting. They just cannot hit what they want to. That's part of the reason that their aerial campaign has been bad. The Ukrainian air defenses have gotten better. We're giving them even more of this. They need more for sure. Um, so I think the civilian losses right now that they're inflicting are kind of uh, more of a sign that the Russians can actually hit what they're trying to hit. And they're wasting these weapons in a military sense. Obviously, the human lives they're taking with this are tragic uh, and painful, but do they affect the war effort of the Ukrainians? No. And so should the Ukrainians be able to strike at the Russian territory? Absolutely, they will, I think. Um, we are holding them back there a little bit, although, again, we have relaxed some of these constraints. When the offensive comes, I fully expect there to be hits in the border areas of Russia on military supply lines and things like this, simply because they have to. And in fact, the closer they get to the international border, the more they will have to strike uh, targets on Russian territory, simply because the Russian logistics will be then focused mostly in Russia itself. And they will have to simply do this. Um, and I expect that our restrictions will probably get loosened up when this happens as well. So what's happening uh, between these two peoples in these two countries, even though Putin says Ukraine is not a country, is it's a divorce, isn't it, uh, Branislav? And I'm just wondering if there's any still any vestiges of Russian support. And there have been, there have been some traitors uh, within the ranks of the Ukrainian military, I think, one of the reasons why the Russians did well in the South was because there was a Ukrainian trader that they deactivated the landmines and the bridge and didn't blow up the bridges. But is there still any problem there? I mean, it sort of works both ways. Medvedchuk, you know, the, the oligarch who was Putin's close friend, Putin is his godfather of his daughter, he apparently told Putin that the war would be a cakewalk and that the Ukrainians would rise up and, you know, greet the Russians with throwing flowers on the tanks, etc. And that was clearly a massive miscalculation. So is there still a problem there in terms of intelligence and security, in terms of, you know, when you get planning a huge offensive like the Ukrainians are? None of this stuff is going to be leaked, is it? Um, so first of all, I would not characterize this as a divorce unless you want to characterize the whole thing as a forced marriage. What you're seeing basically is the last breath uh, of what used to be the Russian Empire. Uh, I think Ukrainians will be quite offended <laughs> from the, the, the characterization given. Um, we need to be very careful here, uh, distinguishing between pro-Russian feelings, which were strong uh, before 2014 especially, uh, and have been on the wane since in Ukraine, and this feeling that they are one nation or brotherly nation or anything like this, which actually hasn't been true uh, for, for the Ukrainians. If you look at the surveys, even on the eve of the takeover of Crimea, right, there were surveys that they did in December and January, in none of the regions did people have majority opinion that they wanted to be joined with Russia. That includes Crimea itself, which, of course, two months later, when the Russians conducted the so-called referendum through the sham government there, uh, they suddenly found huge support. 
the last independent survey, the support for joining Russia from in Crimea was below 50%. And that was the highest in all the regions, right? And so there was, while there was a lot of support before 2014 for having, you know, friendly relations with Russia, yes, similar culture, enjoying history, things like this, it was never the same as we're the same nation. Ukraine voted overwhelmingly to, to leave the Soviet Union, as despite pressure from the United States at the time not to do it, by the way. Uh, what's happened since 2014 is that a lot of people who are friendly to Russia have left for Russia. And a lot of people from the eastern provinces who preferred Ukraine uh, have left for Ukraine. And so overall, all indicators are that feelings toward the Russians have hardened. And of course, since the invasion, essentially, uh, easily 85 to 90 percent of the Ukrainians now prefer to actually fight Russia than offer any territorial concessions. We have surveys on this as well. And so uh, whatever good will there was is destroyed. It's probably been gone for at least one, maybe two generations um, after this. The, the Ukrainians will, like the Poles, I think, define themselves. Part of their identity would be anti-Russian uh, because of this invasion. Is there a chance for still leaks and treason? Yes, absolutely. The Russians spend a lot of money and a lot of time recruiting people in Ukraine. But again, this is nothing to do with them being brotherly nation or anything like this. They've done the same thing in other countries. You can see what's happening in places like Bulgaria right now, where there's a huge pro-Russian fifth column that's slowly taking over as well. And so um, I would not take this as an indicator or anything. Essentially, the war, I think, has forged um, a, a, a unified nation that forced them, the Ukrainians, to define themselves, what they are and what they're not, in a way that would have taken, you know, otherwise decades uh, to achieve uh, through peaceful means. And so this would be, I think that is also part of the reasons that, part of the reason that the Russians will not be able to govern uh, territories that they take. Um, they will have to institute some serious de-Ukrainization there which, you know, genocide, they will have to deport people. They just signed a law yesterday, Putin signed a decree that allows, that declares every Ukrainian in the occupied territories who does not accept Russian citizenship will be declared a foreigner and will be subject to deportation for any sort of subversive activities. These being defined as having unsanctioned meetings, participating in pickets, participating in demonstrations or protests. So basically they can just deport anybody they want now from there under Russian law. And so you see where this is going, right? Um, the Russians know this very well. They are under no illusions that not only did the uh, Ukrainians not meet them with flowers and bread and salt, uh, they've been actively, you know, defending their country. I, the, the, there's one piece of evidence that tells you everything really you need to know for this. Uh, in the first desperate weeks of the, the war, where the Ukrainians are on their, were on their own, there was very little help. Uh, everybody in the West expected Kiev to fall, things like this. In these desperate weeks, the government, remember, it, issues, it issued weapons to anybody who wanted them. And I've seen the videos, people gathering in the squares, trying to get weapons from, uh, the, you know, from the depots and things like this. And so they issued enormous numbers of these weapons to, to, to volunteers. And what did they do with these weapons? Did they march on Kiev to take down their own government? No, they turned it on the Russians. And so um, this is telling you everything you need to know about what the Ukrainians think about this. So just to touch on Medvedchuk, the oligarch who, yep. who controlled a bunch of 
TV stations that uh, Zelensky shut down, and apparently that really irritated Putin. Well, yes, I read that report. I think that's actually a bunch of nonsense in in the sense that this is a trigger for the war, for the invasion. But yes. Uh What explains how Putin gets things so wrong? What kind of advice is he getting? If he blew up the pipelines, which a lot of people think he did, the Nord Stream pipelines, he did it because he thought that would raise the price of oil and gas. And and he's made some terrible miscalculations, shall we say. He's Um, gotten bad advice. So who's giving him bad advice? I actually am not a big fan of the Putin is making super bad decisions and he's getting bad advice theory for the simple reason that a lot of the things that we now attribute to Putin, we kind of conveniently forget that a lot of Western analysts and uh, our military here also made very similar estimates. So either they're all incompetent or they're all looking at the same data and were surprised by what happened, which I think is the closer to reality. One thing we should not underestimate uh, in the euphoria now after, you know, that the Ukraine didn't fall last year, people tend to forget that the Russians actually came very close to achieving the initial goals. I mean, uh, they they got very, they penetrated Kiev at one point. They, uh, the Russia, the Ukrainians had to flood part of the area there to, to stop the advance. Look how much territory they managed to seize without a fight, as you yourself mentioned, in the south for treason, in the in the north um, in the northeast by when the Ukrainians withdrew there. Um, this was actually quite well prepared, and they came very close. And so the to read into the back into this is oh it was all terrible, it was predictable, they was gonna go this way. Um, I think it's a bit disingenuous. A lot of people forget what their own predictions were at the time, right? Mm-hmm. I remember when they were at the gates of Kiev and I wrote a little piece on my blog saying, what if Kiev doesn't fall and this continues? And people started laughing at me because they thought, oh, for sure it will fall. And again, I didn't have any crystal ball, but I just thought, that, what if, right? And I was amazed by how many people were not willing to even grant kind of a hypothetical on this. And now we hear all this, you know, Putin made a mistake. Oh, the same thing with blowing up Nord Stream. Um, I mean, I don't know if the Russians did it. I um, also wrote a piece thing saying that I think they did. But I don't think it was to raise the prices of anything. It was basically, I thought at the time, the, they foresaw that this is going to get shut down. So they thought, okay, maybe we'll do this to cut off, uh, kind of commit ourselves to not trying to reopen it so we can really scare the the Germans and things like this. And it, it did backfire, um, as one could expect. But I think it was basically, you can't fire me, I quit kind of deal uh, with blowing, up, blowing it up at the time. Um, at least that was my interpretation. But again, I don't have any, we don't know. We have to find out. I still think it's the Russians are most likely behind it, though. But that's just, again, speculative. And right. so... Does Putin get bad advice? Sure, uh, for sure. I mean, they only give him stuff that they think is going to be good. But he rose through the ranks of the agencies that did this to the previous regime. So unless he's gone completely senile, which I don't think he has, he knows that people are lying to him. So he will be trying to get more information. So I think the fact of the matter is they did relatively well. They did have a fifth column. They did have people like Medvedchuk and all these guys ready to go. And nobody expected that this, you know, the actor Zelensky, whose popularity at the time of the invasion was, what, 24%, I think, or something crazy like this, very, very low, that he would stay and fight. Everybody expected him to flee, that he'd rally the country. And just ask yourself the hypothetical, what if he had run? What if they'd managed to kill him? Yeah, of course they would have resisted, but some people would have lost their nerve, maybe parts of the military. Who knows? 
And so we should not read from what happened back into, oh, this was a mistake that was predictable. I don't think it was uh, really a mistake. I, I, uh, I think the, the invasion itself was very predictable. Back in 2014, I wrote that it has to happen at some point. Um, the, the only question was when and how it's going to happen, which tells you um, it was not an irrational policy. If you if you can find good reasons for it from a Russian's perspective, right, then it's not irrational. And that feeds into the question you had before. It's like I think it's very problematic to think that Putin is you know being misled or being irrational is constantly making mistakes. He's acting on the information they have. Right now, they're very desperate. They're trying to freeze the war. They're trying to prolong it. That's the only choice they have, and this is what they're doing. Um, it, 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 there's nothing, you know, that, that's very hard to understand about that either. Well, I recall at the time of the when the invasion just began, when everybody was predicting the, the Russians would capture Kiev in a couple of days, mm-hmm. I spoke with the Russian military analyst, Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer, in Moscow, and he was very uh, alone in, in predicting that the Ukrainians would win and uh, they'd be fighting for years to come, which I thought was pretty prescient of him. But just to follow up here in the last few minutes, I want to follow up on Putin's mindset as much as you can figure it out. Does he have any concept of the fact that people in Ukraine and other former Soviet territories and the, and the Baltic states, etc., they don't want gangster government, which is what Putin offers? And he runs a mafia state. And it's corruption in that mafia state, and in particularly in the military itself, that's his biggest enemy. Does he know about it? Uh, almost certainly. Does he care about it? Almost certainly not. Again, for him, this is a matter of, uh, I think, uh, returning territories that he believes should be Russian, right? And if it's what it takes, you know, Tens of thousands of Russian dead and however many Ukrainians dead, he simply does not care. And he believes that uh, he will be able to impose his rule there. Um, why should he care what people think, really? I mean, if they cannot resist, it's irrelevant. I think that's as simple as this. He's a he's a thug. I mean, that is his mindset as far as I can tell. There's nothing, there's no three-dimensional chess here. There's no big strategy here. It is, there's a goal. He's insulated from domestic pressures, basically, so he can do what he wants. We know from the leaks, from these various phone calls between oligarchs, is that no matter how much they hate what he does, none of them will move or none of them will try to do anything about it. All all their advice to each other is kind of, keep your head down, let's weather this. Maybe he pulls a rabbit out of the head, who knows? And if not, uh, they're just afraid of what will happen if he falls and they don't know who's going to come back and then what, you know, bad things will happen to them and their wealth. Nobody will move against him. And he knows this very well. That is the system he built. Yes, it is corrupt. Yes, it is inefficient. That is why part of the reason they're losing in Ukraine is because the military itself is so corrupt and their reforms failed for the, for the most part. And yet again, this is exactly the system that allows him to stay in power in Russia. Why shouldn't it work elsewhere? I don't think the Russians are different as a people or as a psyche from anybody else. If you can impose the system on them, they can work anywhere else, frankly, uh, as long as he's willing to use what's necessary to do it. And I think he is. That is why he needs to be stopped. Well, the American people, at least a percentage of them, could re-elect Donald Trump, who's a, who's a wannabe mafia boss. I mean, 
Yeah, so, so I'm saying that they're, they're not that <laughs> people everywhere are not that different, frankly. I know we have all different cultures and all this kind of stuff, but when people start talking about, well, the Russians are different, they don't know what democracy is, they like this kind of stuff. I don't believe it for a second. Um, and so it can happen anywhere, yes. Right. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much, uh, Branislav. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Branislav Slanchev, who is a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, where he teaches courses in international relations, national security, and game theory. And he studies military coercion, intra-war negotiations, the conduct of war, and war termination. And his articles have appeared in the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, International Studies Quarterly, and Security Studies, among others. And he's the author of Military Threats, the Cost of Coercion, and the Price of Peace. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Oh